Hi, this is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dula on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to the Clashing Sabers Network. Here we go again. Chewie. We're home. I bypassed the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. Might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I, of course, am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I'm here with the man that makes Palpatine look like Jar Jar. Ladies and gentlemen, it is... What does that even mean? You have to say your name first. Before oh, you. hey, it's Drew. How's it going, Brandon? Hey, it means that like you're so smart and witty and cunning and cerebral that mm-hmm. you make Palpatine look like a joke. Oh. You make Palpatine look like Jar Jar. See, I don't think that's exactly what it means, but I'm willing to take it for the, for the moment. Yeah. We'll put know. that theory to the test in a little bit. How's that sound? Artist interpretation. Yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah, your mileage may vary. <laughs> <laughs> and tonight, guys, we are going to be talking about Palpatine and particularly looking at his contingency plan. So to do that, we had to bring in the Lord of Lore. Ladies and gentlemen, you know him as Mr. Zach Chrisman. What up? What up? By the way... You know, Jar Jar, he was technically no, supposed to be a Sith don't. Lord until George Lucas backed <laughs> out of that one. No. Stop. Hey, I'm not saying it should have happened. I'm saying it was going to happen. George but Lucas, George Lucas got cold feet. He did. He <laughs> got cold here. feet. Get your red flags here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Could you imagine? That would have been That would have been interesting. It would have been interesting. George. You know, I kind of want to see how it goes, how it would have went. That's what we need in the the future Star Wars. What if? Oh, that's the future of Star Wars visions. Is we're gonna get an anime I was version? Getting there first. I needed you to take a deep breath so I could speak next, but you beat me to it. Oh, hey, the man. countdown is on. We got one more month to go before Visions is released, so that's all right. <laughs> yeah, and we don't know what all this. I mean, we 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 know what the stories are about, but we don't know, you know, what characters might be in there or you never know how they're gonna be told. Who knows? Maybe we will get Darth Jar Jar, but um, holy. <laughs> <laughs> but Curse until then guys we uh we will still be you know doing what we do over here and of course that includes our uh, literacy initiative so i just wanted to talk real quick about our patreon before we get into the actual content because between our patreon and donations that we had uh via our last fundraiser we have a lot of books uh, piled up in my closet that I want to send huge <laughs> boxes to. We guys like the, you guys who are supporting us, whether you you uh, purchased a raffle ticket or you're on our Patreon listening to our movie commentaries or whatever. Like, it's seriously just so cool to be able to go to a store. And I literally went to a half price books the other day, and for once they had all the leveled readers like on a shelf. You usually have to go through every single book to find them, which is, you know, it's fun, but they just had it all on the shelf and I literally just grabbed all of them and put them in the basket. That's and amazing. just went up front and because we, you know, financially we were able to because of the the work that you guys have done. So now we need to get 
books into the classrooms. That's the next big step. And we don't want to pick the people. We want you guys to pick the people. Uh, we want your friends. We want your children. We want your brothers and sisters and, and everybody to be the one that get these books. They don't have to be a Star Wars fan. They don't have to uh, have read a Star Wars book. It, there's no qualifications other than you going to ClashingSabers.net uh, and nominating them as a teacher and just telling us about the great work they are doing so that we can celebrate with them. Um, Brandon, what do you think, it, what's a good grade level that people should be looking for? Like, do you have mostly elementary school kids? So, yeah, right now school? I have, have mostly elementary and um, you could go up to sixth, seventh grade. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, high school books right now because we just haven't had the opportunity to uh, work with a lot of high schools yet. But um, if you have somebody and they're in high school or they're not, you know, in in uh, elementary or whatever it may be, um, nominate them anyways. I keep track of mm -hmm, all of that. Mm -hmm. And as soon as possible, um, we actually just sent a box to our first music teacher, which is really cool. So I actually oh, went that's through awesome. on, Yeah, I went through on Amazon and I was like, I have no idea of what you need to teach music, but here's all the books that I could find. You tell me which ones you want and I'll get them sent to you. So I sent her those and then I also sent her a box of uh, books because she said she wanted to promote literacy in her classroom too. And uh, so we do whatever's necessary. Um, thankfully, just with my you know background in education, I'm, I know kind of how to reach out to them. I kind of am, am able to have an idea of a lot of the needs uh, for particular grade levels, which is extremely helpful so i take it yeah. you know I, I really pride myself on reaching out to the teachers if necessary and figuring out exactly the needs of their students so again if you have anybody um even if it's not somebody that i have books ready for right now it does not matter i keep track of those mm -hmm. i those are mm -hmm. you know right in front of me every day so that we can make sure that whether it be my next trip to half price books or our next fundraiser that every teacher that gets nominated uh to our page will get books in their classroom so uh, I will make sure that the link is there in uh, the show notes that you can just click and and go on there. Um, and then also I wanted to plug the the big thing that we're going to be doing that we've been planning for how long, Drew? Have we been planning this thing? Oh, at least a year or two now. Yeah, yeah. We are <laughs> Which finally... Which sad because it doesn't, need, it doesn't need a year or two's worth of planning to no. actually put it into motion. <laughs> no, it doesn't, but... <laughs> Um, we Some are going to be came doing, up. <laughs> doing a trivia tournament. Yeah, yeah. There was this little thing called, uh, you know, COVID and life that happened. And a lot of things have been happening. But we are finally going to do our Clashing Sabers trivia tournament where we will have uh, shows dog. competing against each other um, to win the ultimate championship. So that will be starting uh, here this month. And re releases will go through, um, at least for the prequels, which is what we have set up for round number one, will be going through uh, the beginning of October. And then uh, we will get into the original trilogies. That will be our uh, our final rounds and championship rounds. So we, I'm working out of, if, if you're interested in... in learning a lot of mindless and, and mind-numbing Star Wars uh, trivia, <laughs> like the height of the actors and different things like that. Uh, there's an Obsessed with Star Wars book you can find on, on uh, you know, thrift books or something for like $5, and it's got 2,500 questions. So that's what we'll be working out of um, for that tournament. So make sure you're subscribed to the channel, and you will uh, be able to play along at home and, and laugh at 
how little we know or be amazed by how much we know. I don't know. Yeah, all the stuff we thought we knew pretty well until somebody asked it out loud, and then we're like, uh, uh, exactly, uh, exactly. Um, is lore a category? <laughs> mm. Then I'm out. No, no I'm just, I'm just kidding. Oh, see, geez. see, if I gave you hints, that would be cheating, and that wouldn't be fair to everybody else. You and already we- told us the books you're pulling them from. <laughs> Yes, but I was fair and impartial about it. Everybody heard it. So everybody has the opportunity to cheat now. Heck yes. So, uh, cheat to win. Cheat to win. <laughs> so we got a, we've got a minute before that, and, and we've got some Star Wars to talk today. But before we get into that, uh, you know, in our contingency plan conversation, Zach, I wanted to throw it to you and ask you, uh, what, what have you been Star Warsing lately? What's going on in, in Zach's Star Wars world? Um. Well, I mean, what I've been doing is I've been catching up on the High Republic comics. Um, I'm only one issue behind now because it just came out uh, last week, and I haven't gotten around to it. And then I finished up The Rising Storm immediately after we last talked on Sith Talk. Um, and that's what I've been Star Warsing. And little, um, just a, like, quick review. It's great, and it really when I haven't had much Star Wars lately that I've been super heightened interested in, this book really changed that and and created a refueling of Star Wars because not that I ever... I never, like, lose interest in Star Wars as a fan. I tend to block it out for a little bit so that I can re... You know, I can, like, get reacclimated with it. And this book just totally put me on the deep end of it, it, it was a reminder of why i'm a fan not that i ever need reminding but it, it was it was it was such a good read that's all i can say so that's what i've been star warsing is just that and you know staring at my lightsaber collection which i always do yeah uh rising storm is one of those books if you're into especially like you know lore and stuff like that and um different philosophies and and all of that kind of stuff it is packed like i actually so where Lindsay and i are going to be recording uh this week about rising storm and i had to go through onto the wikipedia page and go through the chapter synopses to make sure i remembered everything because it was so jammed packed with stuff um and so I'm really excited to talk about that. How are the how are the comics? I know the I think on the 24th the volume one comes out of the High Republic comics, and I'll I'll be getting into it there. But what's your what's your thoughts on that? The comics, you know, um, they're obviously a little bit more smaller contained. The books are definitely meant for the bigger world of it all. The comics are um, self-contained, but they generate a little bit more around what Avar's doing in the time of the Rising Storm or around that time. Um, And uh, Skier and then Skier's Padawan. I forget her name. I don't know why I'm slipping it. But it's centered around those three, and it's centered around uh, the Drangir and that threat. So it's kind of like the rising storm is on the right side and the comics are on the left side of the galaxy. So they're dealing with a bunch of different things. Um, They're just like these books, the rising storm light of the Jedi. They're just so grand in the, in the way of the scale of the things. And that doesn't take away from the comics because you appreciate the characters that are in the comics so much more. And the lessons that they teach are very valuable. 
Uh, so I don't want to downplay saying that they're smaller scale. Smaller scale is a very good thing in my eyes because I would even consider Claudia Gray like a smaller scale storyteller, and that's what makes her so good. I mean, like aside from, you know, Lost Stars takes a very big moving galaxy but is a smaller scale story between two characters. So that's not a bad thing. It's a really good comic. And uh, the the artwork is just so good. It's so good. And the writing is great. Kevin Scott always kills it. Um, well, and one and yeah. thing I like, you know, as somebody who, you know, keeps up with this stuff, but also, you know, I wait for the entire volumes to come out on the comics when I was reading Rising Storm and they, they were mentioning things with like the Dren gear and other Jedi, you know, doing other things off, I was like, I bet you that's probably what's in the comics. So I'll probably, you know, like I, didn't, I wasn't like, oh, my God, what's happening there? Do I need to know that? It was like, that's probably in the comics and, and I'll, you know, be able to get to it later. But it's also it doesn't take away from reading the book. But I'm sure you had that extra layer of kind of like uh, if you read Catalyst going into Rogue One. Like, if you read Catalyst before you went into Rogue One, that first scene means so much more and is so much more impactful. And, like, I've even asked people who didn't read it or who read it after, and they're like, yeah, it just, it completely changes it. Or, you know, it if you didn't read the book, then Lyra getting shot doesn't, spoiler alert, uh, doesn't really matter as much to you. But when you spent, you know, 350, 400 pages and she's pretty much the central figure that the book revolves around and at least emotionally you you really feel it so it's a to, it's an interesting it's a it's a fun thing and, and we're going to talk about that more as we look at at palpatine's contingency plan we're definitely going to be talking some more high republic but drew what about you what have you been uh getting into lately in the star wars world uh not to echo too much of what zach was saying but i was able to finish um the storm was it rising storm Rising. i already, storm, already yeah. forgot what it's called yeah uh finished that one too um it was definitely good um i enjoyed it i don't know that it's going to knock out light of the jedi as the best part of the high republic just yet we'll have to wait and see i haven't kept up on the comics but as you guys were talking i'm i'm trying to sign into uh one of my comicsology no i need to own the, the thing and hold it in my hands so uh, he heard Avar Chris, so he's like, oh, I yeah, know. I got to get around to it. <laughs> Listen, that's the reason that Rising Storm wasn't as good as it should be, is because she's not in the book nearly as much as she should be. And I was like, where, see, where, where is my the love of my life? Like, see, what is and she that's doing? I would love to, anywhere. I would love to talk about Rising. I mean, we don't have to today or right now, but I would actually love to talk about rising storm with you particularly because i think there i think that i i think there's something i think we definitely have different opposing opinions sometimes and i i definitely want to hear more about yours because while there was a you know spoiler alert a avar was not a main figure in that story I kind of liked it because she's still definitely a center of that story. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like the little tease of that. Like, she, everybody wanted her to be there, but she was off doing this in the comics. And that's what made me really want to go back to the comics and kind of like, what was she doing? Because this is a huge event that's going on in this book that they really need her, her friends need her, and she's not there. What is she doing? And yeah. it kind of really fills in the gaps of, you know, she's busy. And I I guess 
Girl's she busy with job. yeah she's Leave got a alone. day job no for real she does though but uh i definitely loved it more because the way light of the jedi ends with this whole friendship and then relationships and then all that and going into rising storm i was totally hoping that she was gonna you know be in this book because of certain characters wanting to see her and the fact that that didn't happen really left me hungry for the third the next main installment so much more because it's building up to this yeah there's something to be said for like the scarcity effect you know um i think darth vader is in the original trilogy for like a total of like 41 minutes or something like that like he doesn't have a lot of screen time he doesn't even hit the hour mark in screen time but he makes such a big impact. And when you look at stories like Rogue One or like Rebels where he makes appearances and people realize that you can't just have him front and center the whole time because he's Darth Vader and you need to keep him special, then you get these amazing moments like we did in Rogue One and like we did in Rebels. And I think they're kind of doing that with Avar. I, I, I have ideas of kind of with the, the Avar and Stellan and uh, Elzar and kind of some ideas I'm going to throw out on Don't Burn the Sacred Text about maybe what they're setting up there. But I think they're, I think they know what they have in that character um, and what they've built with her. And they are not going to, you know, just put her in everything just because she's really cool, but actually utilize her as a, a an important property, an important piece to the story. And so we don't want to see her everywhere and we don't want to see her winning all the time because then it doesn't mean as much when she does. I don't know what you're talking about. I want her on every single page of every single book I ever read again. And I mean, <laughs> it's just, just so much more fun to be around. Like, we're, we're going to have to have a little uh, sidebar of don't burn the sacred text here for like 10 minutes because Zach, I know what you're talking about. Like her, her, her presence is still powerful, even though, Look, listen, listen. If you haven't read this book, just skip forward a few minutes. We'll let you know when to click back in. Don't worry. Um, her presence is definitely felt, even though she is not on screen, as it were. Um, and the things you learn about her relationship with some of the characters was very interesting, I thought. And I can definitely see how that, that pushes things forward. But man, I really did miss her specifically. The characters that they have driving the plot are fine in, in Rising Storm, but I think that she was so fascinating from Light of the Jedi that it was kind of like knowing this ice cream store could give you your favorite ice cream, but we're going to let you try these other 17 flavors first before you get back to us. Like, no, I just want my mint chocolate chip. That's all I really want is that kind of ice cream. And see, so. I kind of looked at it um, when I was getting into the book. There's, and I'm not giving any plot uh, away, but there is a part in the book where she is supposed to be on a ship and they're waiting to, see her broke my heart and that's what i loved about it that's i loved the fact that elzar because to me when it comes to the high republic i love all the characters like stellan has his own certain charm um i like uh what's his name the padawan a bell bell yeah, i love bell he's got such a um yeah you would a, a heartburn <laughs> night like he, he's just he's got so much heart um, but there's a naivety uh, to him that he still hasn't figured out his confidence. But really, for me, the standout character is Elzar because I definitely, I, 
I'm kind of not tired of the trope of every Jedi needs to go full dark side or they need to be tempted by the dark. And I definitely see Elzar as somebody who is just straight up conflicted. And that confliction that he has about who he's supposed to be, what he's supposed to be, he's answering all the questions that I feel like I would answer if, or I would, I would have if I were a Jedi. He's so conflicted on you know, passion, his desires. He's a good person, but he still has these very human desires that he's supposed to just let up and ignore. So for me, I actually don't call him Elzar, man. I call him Elzar the man because he is the man. I mean, he is, (laughs) he's just, he's so compelling. And I feel like really that book was his story. And I, Mm -hmm. I, I love I want Avar to be more integral in the in the third book, obviously, because she was the whole missing in that story, but I loved the whole that was there because I felt his confliction so much more. Had she had been there, I I don't know if I would have, and that gave me such a um a ground for that because at the end of light of the Jedi, when you realize that these two have had some history and she's like this straight up almost perfect Jedi in the limelight, essentially. Um, But she has this little bit of dirty laundry that she's dealing with in a completely different way than he is. That's compelling to me. That's very, very juicy stuff for me. And (laughs) I, I just, I, I like Elzar so much and I don't even like him because I think that he's perfect or he's, you know, everything he does is the right move. I definitely think there's some parts in the book where I'm like, eh, you're kind of contradicting yourself, bro. Like, what are you doing oh, yeah, in this absolutely. situation? You know, like, I even was like, really, dude, come on. But that's what I liked about him. He, like, he's just got a lot of issues, baggage, but yet he does have this power within him that is true, real Jedi power, and there is a light inside of him. He just does not see it in himself, and that's what makes me love him so much. Uh, well, it's, it's, I don't think it's so much that he doesn't see it, but that he, he definitely takes a certain uh, a certain detour upon the Jedi path in that story for a moment, where he for the first for most of the story he doesn't care that he has these issues that need to be worked on. He's more about just, you know, moving forward and solving the problem later. But there comes a point where that ha- that bill has to come due. And he leans into what most people would have said is the wrong decision. And that's okay. That's what makes the character interesting. That's one of the reasons he was fun to watch is because you watch him come to this logical conclusion that this is what I need to do now. And I'm going to tap into what I've got in my reserves in order to make it happen. And that was very interesting because the rest of us are like, no wave off, man, bad, bad times ahead. And that kind of contrasts the way, you know, the Stellan's character behaves where he's very, you know, he's much more rigid and concrete and that's his character. And that's fine. That's the role he's playing until the very end where he himself, he allows himself to tap into those moments of emotion and whatnot. And it makes a difference on a galactic scale, which was really interesting to watch because you, he's not the character you would think does that kind of thing. So we're watching the two characters kind of cross paths in the middle where Elzar is much more acknowledging the emotional side that he has and, and, and his 
proclivity to let him dry, let it drive him to do certain things and the problems that it causes, but also Stellan's on the, the other side of the equation, not allowing those things to disrupt his path. And we see the problems that particular process causes. And there at the end, we see the two of them cross and change the way in which they do things and the benefit that becomes of that. And of course, as in most Star Wars stories, we learn that balance is what is required between those two things. So and see, I, it's I good. look I look at Elzar um, just, you know, to kind of wrap up the Elzar. I, I kind of looked at it as at the very beginning of the book, he was unsure of himself, but he was very much excelling in the role that he was given. And he was doing a good job as a Jedi Master, uh, kind of heading this area of the, the galaxy until the... Uh, the word that Avar would be coming in, and then he kind of, kind of unscrambles, much like, you know, an an ex or a recovering alcoholic. You know, you don't. He's 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 working. He's going to the gym. Then he has to get himself into a social social situation where he's at a bar, and now he's starting to unravel with his emotions because he's dealing with addiction and stuff like that. I definitely saw Elzar in that light. Like he was doing wow. really good, staying focused. <laughs> Well, I mean, I just I just saw him unravel the moment Avar was mentioned. Like it was almost like a past life was simply dumped on him again because at the beginning of the book it definitely did come across as he was excelling and falling in and kind of gaining this confidence as a Jedi and then Avar gets mentioned and he slowly unravels only to bring himself focused. I that's just what I got. And that's what the great thing about characters and books, you can kind of interpret them all on your own, but that's what I got. It's interesting because I think the, the the way that it played out read to me more of like he had been fooling himself with this sense of purpose. Like, because at the end of Light of the Jedi, he receives this premonition from the Force, which is interesting to remember. He's the one that the Force picks in order to un you know to reveal this this grand threat and this horrifying end that will you know meet him and all his his friends. And so he's wrestling with the, the knowledge and the fear and the uncertainty that it brings to him. And the way he solves that is not to actually address the problem, but it's to fill his time and his hours with something else instead. You know, he feels he find, finds this position on on planet Valor. Well, I think it's Valor. I'm not sure what it's called now. Um, and and then that's kind of like a stopgap, but it doesn't solve the problem. And I think what was interesting to me was that it's a it's a solid year between those two books, and I didn't really know that until towards the end of the book like there's a, a line where it says he hadn't seen this person in all, over in almost a year or something like that and that kind of took me off guard because i would have thought these two stories were much more closer in time based on where what these characters were doing with the knowledge that they had like Elzar, bell mentions it briefly in the beginning is it bell okay yeah because it's like he said something like 18 months since he lost his master or something like that it's been a, a lot longer time than i thought it was had been between the two stories because Elzar's in much earlier stages, I think, of dealing with the the weight of the knowledge of of pending doom, and it, it seems he's much, he's still kind of in that bartering phase. He's like, well, if I put my efforts into this over here, that will help stave off the fear and other issues that I'm dealing with on the other side. And it's only when, like you said, Zach, when he hears that. Avar is not going to be there or, you know, he first learns that she's coming. He's excited. He's like, the gang's getting back together. Everything's going to be, everything's working. This is going the way I thought it was or wanted it to. And then when that doesn't turn out to be true, the poor guy starts to slip down that slippery slope very quickly. And I agree with that. Brendan, have you, uh, have you read this book? 
Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> no, I was. It was. I just was enjoying listening to you guys go back and forth on it because I, I think there's there's a lot of valid points in there. Um, it it felt like you didn't like it, did you? No, I did like it. I was considering. <laughs> I was considering what you were saying about the time, the time difference, right? Yeah, and I, I, was, I tend to forget. I was shocked. Yeah, and and it seemed relevant in certain relationships and not relevant in others, and that is is hmm. something that I'm realizing right now kind of bugged me because, like with Bell and Loden, you you had the mention and it played a role in how Bell approached the things that he was doing in this book, whereas with Elzar. Like, he's had these visions for a year, and we find him right where we left him a year ago. That was, you know, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like, and, and Belle, who for 18 months or 12 months or however long it was, living in this funk of, the book goes into how much he's disconnected himself from the Force. I, I find that hard to believe if, if he's living shoulder to shoulder with these, you know, monks, basically, in the temple. And he's gone the Luke Skywalker route of disconnection. I, I feel like somebody would have been like, hey, you don't seem like you're all there today. Let's talk about it. And, and I, I find that difficult to believe. And, and maybe it's something that I uh, will get addressed elsewhere. Or, but he kind of resolves that at the end where he, he, you know, he, t- he dives headfirst back into the pool. And, it, and, and he saves lives as a result. It's kind of like, yeah, I, I see it differently. Like looking at it, you know, as you know, you have you have these leaders, these teachers that are are seeing what he's going through, and it it's, I mean, it happens a lot in like in schools where teachers will be like, well, this person has this problem, so that's why they behave that way, but they don't say, hey, let me help you, or, or you know, they don't try mm. to figure out what's actually wrong with them, right? Like, oh, I gotcha. you know mom is is on drugs or they lost a they lost a grandparent over the summer or whatever and it's never hey i noticed that you're acting this way you know does it have to do with this what can i do to help you it's this is why they're that way period but that's weird because stellan goes out of his way to ask elzar those types of questions but they also have that relationship they have that. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like the three of them have grown up together, basically within the the walls of the temple. So it's just a shame that poor poor Bell doesn't uh, have that same kind of thing. Yeah. So this but is really a public were... service announcement to say, hey, you need to be a mentor to young kids. <laughs> <laughs> talk it, talk it out, people. Talk it. But out. to be fair, Stellan did Ask plant questions. the seeds of that in that book. He did plant the seeds of opening up a you know lifeline to Bell. Yeah. But didn't. Is that in that one? I thought that was in Light of the Jedi. Because doesn't no. Bell like kind of nope. somebody takes him under their alleged wing at the end of Light of the Jedi when he goes back to Starlight Beacon? That's uh, when Indira takes him when his new master. Yeah, but then Stellan that's also right. pulls yeah, him aside in Rising Storm yeah, and like kind of talks with him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So and Indira, he's the one so that really, teaches him the lesson <laughs> about. Well, yeah, he's the one that teaches him about the lesson of you know the masters leaving this world and mm-hmm. how their presence is still felt. And Bell could not feel that presence, so it, it definitely started the seeds that happened yeah. later in the book. So stay tuned for uh, Don't Burn the Sacred Text Part 2 <laughs> Part coming two, up yes. in your podcast feed in the coming days and weeks. Um, so this is a... That's what it, I've been Star Wars lately. 
Yeah. I mean, hey, it's great one, man. That's a good opener for an episode. Yeah, man. It yeah, is a bought, pack the, book. Uh, I bought the uh, Black Series um, Mandalorian in his uh, Beskar armor. So good. So worth it. Love that figure. Very nice. Very nice. Well, uh, we are actually going to kind of get into the time period of the Mandalorian a little bit by talking about Palpatine and his contingency plan and nice transition. Uh, looking at how that kind of compares to what we've also been talking about with the High Republic and the way that they are rolling things out across media. So we're going to take a quick break and come right back after this. Ow! We you are, should leave oh no. that in there. You should leave that in there. <laughs> the Emperor is dead. So what happens now? We retaliate, Commander. The Empire will assault the very foundation of the rebels' pathetic belief in themselves. Tell me, I'm. What is the source of their belief? Hope. Hmm. Correct. This messenger's presence is a great honor, one I choose to share with my daughter. Admiral Versio, Operation Cinder is to begin at once. Resistance, rebellion, defiance. These are concepts that cannot be allowed to persist. You are but one of many tools by which these ideas shall be burned away. Heed my messenger. He shall relay you to your target. Operation Cinder is the last command of our Emperor and the first step in securing our future. Inferno is crucial to its success. What's our target? You are not verified. That information can wait. For now, here are our next assignments. They are unusual, but these are unusual times. Go, Commander. Some of you have uh, probably seen the recent StarWars.com article by Emily Shkokani, uh, and she covered the contingency plan. If not, um, I'm going to put that in the show notes, so make sure you check it out because it'll be a good companion piece as we go through this episode where we're going to be looking at Palpatine's contingency plan and particularly looking at it and its evolution across different mediums and comparing and contrasting it to what is being done with what we were talking about earlier with the High Republic. So uh, with that in mind, Drew, I'm going to throw it to you because this was kind of your idea that you kind of started to form. And oh, boy. Lay out for us the the comparison that you're thinking about and just kind of give us a springboard for this conversation. Well, okay, I'll do my best um, and, and require you guys to, to play along at home a little bit here. Because one of the things that stood out to me as we read through this, it's a, it's a really good tracking of what the different pieces of media have put out in relation to the contingency plan. And it it's really helpful, obviously, the more you've had your own personal experience with them, because anytime they start talking about Battlefront 2 is where I start to kind of glaze over a bit. There's a big part of you this. You shut that your mouth, on. sir. 
No, 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 no. We protect no. Iden Versio in this house. Listen, I didn't say the book. I read the book. I've never played the game. So when it, it goes into talking about Operation Cinder, which is mentioned several times in other places, but here's well, the first thing that stood out to me is Operation Cinder is described in a way in this particular article that I don't remember seeing it described as before. Um, and I want to read you the sentences that the, the, the sentence that stood out. It says Operation Cinder sought to destroy Imperial and New Republic planets alike with the goal to destroy sensitive information or other liabilities. Okay, that's one way of putting it. Because if you scroll up from there, there's actually a link within the article to StarWars.com's other description of what is Operation Cinder. Because this one was put together a little bit earlier in the year. Actually, let me see. I wonder if there's a date on this that I could find fast enough where I could fill the time talking and scroll and read all at the same time. Nope, can't do it. Okay, cool. So it goes into talking about Operation Cinder slightly after season two of Mandalorian ended. Here we go, July 9th. So a month ago, it starts talking about Operation Cinder. But listen to the way in which it's described in this particular uh this particular article. Let's see. And I see now I got to find it again because I went through it. Here we go. The idea behind the strikes was, according to Admiral Garrick Versio, a calculated campaign of fear to reclaim control. In other words, if the Empire showed they still had enough power, the people would abandon the New Republic. In reality, Operation Cinder was one part of the contingency plan of a petty man who believed the Empire did not deserve to survive without him. That is a radically different description than the way that the more recent article puts it. Because I think that the goal of Operation Cinder mm, changes depending on who you ask. And I can't tell yet if it's revisionist history or if we're doing the best we can to tie things together as new medium comes out. And that's kind of the problem with the contingency plan I have overall is the fact that there's an attempt to tie disparate pieces together in order to fit the episode nine resolution. Like the whole idea of bringing Palpatine back in bodily form doesn't really line up with the other elements of the contingency plan. Because if you read the article from July, the article says that it was designed to burn the empire and cause as much chaos and carnage as possible. How is that tied with, I better come back in 30 years and try and take over the galaxy again? I'm not really sure that it does super well. But if we're looking at the August article, this more recent one, it starts to make a little bit better sense when it's described as something that is put into place in order to, quote, destroy sensitive information or other liabilities. I mean, that would make better sense when you think about Naboo specifically, because, you know, Naboo is put on the list of planets to burn down to the ground. And that makes sense because as Palpatine's homeland, he probably wouldn't want whatever is left there to be uncovered and, and, I don't know, not necessarily used against him, but because it's too late, but in order to somehow demystify his rise to power, perhaps. I mean, the more we learn about a human being, the more human they become to us. Like when you finally realize that, you know, presidents and kings and queens and rulers of nations all have to still put their pants on one leg at a time, you start to look at them a little bit less reverently. So I can understand that. But balancing these two rationales behind Operation Cinder is a challenge for me. And I think that challenge is inherent in when they're trying to tie all these different things together. Now, here's where I want to contrast the High Republic. Not that the High Republic is burning things to the ground, although in a sense, maybe, but we'll get to that later. The High Republic seems to be doing a much smoother job of telling 
a long form story. And I think it's because of all the stuff we'd seen originally around Project Luminous, what, two, three, four years ago? I don't remember when this stuff was first announced. And this is about two, three years ago. Yeah, was, so two, three, three years, years ago, ago, we got what was the most encouraging thing I think I could possibly see, um, a whiteboard, you know, just <laughs> somebody with a plan, a timeline of events that these guys, have, these, these five or six authors have put together and say, here's the general form of the story. Go play in the sandboxes in these little areas and, and have fun. That has done so many good things within, I think, the High Republic storytelling process that the I'm not sure how to describe the time period. I guess just the, the sequel time period era in general didn't really have the same opportunity to benefit from. So yeah, I, I don't want to rehash the same argument that no one had any ideas what was going to happen after The Force Awakens came out because that argument's old and tired and not really that interesting. I like that we were learning our lesson. That is encouraging. But I think that this article, you know, inside Intel Palpatine's contingency plan is a really good and strong attempt at putting these things together. This is probably the best job we could possibly get. And I like that so many elements have worked together to do it. You know, like we said, Battlefront two kind of used operation cinder probably the most effectively, even though it was mentioned in other things. I think it was mentioned in lost stars first. Maybe yeah, it was mentioned in lost stars um, and lost stars and the Leia comic came out about the same time. Oh, and okay. In the Leia comic, we actually see her uh, helping Naboo. Uh, Is as- that when she's on the planet and she walks through the doors and yes. she feels cold and it's okay? See, yeah. that would that seems like that's that's a great way to tie things in. I like that kind of thing. But well, and other, go ahead. I, 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 well, I was gonna say I think that they, uh, you know, have a kind of they've learned from it. In, in multiple ways. One, I think, like, the contingency plan shows that you can set these things up across mediums. And then, of, cur- of course, you know, they made the mistakes and they didn't have things that lined up. And person A got to do one thing while person B got to do another. And now we have to time together, right? I, I, I say the biggest issue with episode nine is that JJ just got to do whatever he wanted. And, and nobody oh. tried to check, hey, this is what happened over here. Or, hey, tweak the story this way or whatever. It was just like... Here you go. You're J.J. Abrams, so do whatever you want to finish this out because obviously you can do it. No, I think that's a little reductive. I mean, the the guy had like, what, 35 minutes to put together a script after they jettisoned the first round and the director and the writer. It is reductive. I will admit to that. But I do think think it in in just simple for for the sake of brevity, I think that that's kind of more or less what happened there. Whereas there's there's a kernel of truth in there because I think that being a slave to a, a deadline of we've got to ha- have a movie hit on this day, and therefore we've got to have filming done by this day, and therefore we have to have a script done by this day, is kind of where that problem comes from. You know, right. If the, if the poor movie had had another six months to cook in the oven, we probably would have gotten a lot better cake at the end of it. But I think that this article in particular, um, I like the way in which it reaches out to different elements. Like there's there's talk in Mandalorian, um, the episode in season two, where they mention one of the planets, you know, in the Believer episode, which is still one of my favorite episodes yeah. of the entire show. Where uh, Bill Burr's character talks about Burning Khan. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a great episode. Unbelievable. W- one of the best things, I think, in Star Wars, you know, video media ever is that particular episode. Still a big fan of that. But, but bringing that kind of an element in 
to show us the real world consequences of the Operation Cinder was was really neat. But I wonder about how much of that was, you know, you can really tie to Palpatine's plan. Because if we believe that he is a master manipulator, which is pretty clear, if we believe that he does indeed play the long game, which I think, you know, the prequels set out pretty strong, how much of the collateral damage to the Empire is part of the plan of Operation Cinder and the contingency in general. Because if, if, the, if the plan all did go according to the whole plan, then part of the problem is the Aftermath books. Because at the end of the third one, Sloan is given the charge to take everything and run to the Unknown Regions and, form, and basically give birth to the First Order out there. But that's not what the contingency plan included. It included detonating the entire planet of Jakku and eliminating the rest of the Empire. So is there a way in which we tie that change of function to the overall plan? I mean, is someone really going to try and argue that Palpatine expected Gallius Rex to try and blow the planet up, screw it up, and then hoist it over onto Sloan's shoulder to run away with the rest of the Empire? I mean, I don't know I, how we do that. I don't think you can make that argument, but I think you can make the argument that Palpatine, as much as he is a master manipulator, he was a master tactician. Yes, a tactician, and and he's really good at utilizing any situation to his advantage, right? And so he, you know, would take people and put them in positions, and you can even go back. You know, this idea plays out a lot in the Plagueis book where he would move certain people in this direction or hint to this other thing. Like he you see in uh, in in Attack of the Clones, the the little hint that Jar Jar gets, even though it's uh, it's not Palpatine that says it, but he gets that little hint. And it's like you can't decide for Jar Jar that you're, you know that he's going to go say these things. But you can drop that and hope that works out. If that does work out, you go this way. If that doesn't work out, you go the other way. And when you go to look at the contingency plan, I think you have to go to uh, what we get in Victory's Price, where, spoiler Ooh. alert for that book, where they go to to Coruscant to destroy that that database, right? Um, and they take apart the, the messenger droid, the sentinel droid that Palpatine sent out. And those sentinels you know, chose certain people and they were chosen based on these algorithms that had been created to find the people who would stay loyal to the empire. So I don't think it was necessarily as a, a structured of an idea or a structured of a plan as the grand Sith plan was. I think it was the empire needs to burn because it, it doesn't need to be with anybody other than me. And I'm going to put these pieces in position that will hopefully somehow keep this flame alive. I, I think he maybe had ideas while I'm trying to figure it out. But I'm going to get the people that are loyal to me out. So while I figure it out, that they can start building the thing that is next. So then when I do return, I don't have to play another 30, 40, 50 year game. I'm just stepping in and taking <laughs> over. I mean, obviously, the elephant in the room is this article is pieced together because of last or you know episode nine's um you know kind of jumbled plot that didn't really just kind of it, it didn't it was like half exposition so this article is like kind of cleaning up the actual canon and what that's the elephant yeah. in the room but when you talk about uh operation cinder and um versio you know those sentinels 
Sentinel, Palpatine, Droid, whatever, those were probably specifically sent to, with those droids, to go to a specific person. So when you talk about Cinder not making sense when Versio is essentially trying to create a chaotic smear campaign against the New Republic, to him, that could be easily very much Palpatine had planned for him to do that based on who he was as a person, his belief in him. He could have said, go send this, you know, send a smear campaign against the entire New Republic. And he would have bought it because Palpatine already knew that. And so, therefore, it's true to him, and it's still part of Palpatine's plan. When we get into the Sloan stuff, the Sloan stuff is very jumbly because I think for that to have made sense when you're specifically looking at the Aftermath book, she's going to the the Unknown Regions, and she could have very well, I mean, like, our at least my head goes, yeah, she got to Exegol, she found all this stuff, she, you know, possibly you know, got the right people in the right positions and, you know, help Palpatine kind of get this thing going. But the fact that she wasn't in episode nine at all, it definitely leaves the aftermath books very ambiguous on that end. It's very much like I, when I look at the aftermath books, I still love the, the heroes of that story. But when it comes to Sloan, it's like an empty shell because there was oh, nothing man. after that. Oh, that's hard to hear, but okay. <laughs> Continue. Well, I, I just mean because she was not, there's been no word about her role, and they were clearly trying to create a First Order origin story. Like, that was very evident that that was, like, the beginning of yeah. the First Order. And it just ended up, like, to me, like, dry, empty air because we don't know what her role was in that. And that would, that seemed like such an integral part of that actual book. Brandon, I feel like you and I have probably had this conversation before. How much do you think the first order had an awareness of the, the final order out there? Because Kylo Ren doesn't even know where Exegol is. Like he doesn't know it's of its existence until, you know, he starts hearing voices again in his head. I don't think, I don't think they knew anything about it. Honestly. Um, I think maybe at the beginning, the you know when Brendel and and Ray Sloan are out there starting to form things, that you the the final order and the first order were more unified, you know, and then oh you think they were more you think they were more unified, at like least they were it, one entity. I think they kind of sprang out of the same seed. Like I think, and maybe some other people went off off in another direction or something. I think something happened there. I think that that somehow one leads to another, but I don't think when we get to them in the Force Awakens that General Hux knows about the Final Order. Or see, see I think General Hux. Them. I think General Hux knows uh, about the the whole entire thing because. Well, I mean, I guess it ans- the first question before I even get into my answer is, <laughs> what is Snoke's role in this? Is Snoke Palpatine? Oh, like, was, was Snoke Palpatine the entire time, or was he an actual uh, free-forming person that had his own, his own personality? Was he himself? Because the only thing that I can kind of... There, there's only one other personality of Snoke, and that was in the Kylo Ren comic, where right. Ben goes to Snoke, but was that Palpatine? Who who was that? Was Palpatine in that 
uh, like, you know, essentially possessing him. It's certainly not beyond his um, power transfer. Mm-hmm. But like, was Snoke hit? Was Snoke Snoke or was Snoke Palpatine? That's very confusing I, to me. We, I yeah, think that Snoke is, is a pal- real problem. I think Snoke is Snoke. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. He, I think, you know, sure, there's, you know, we have evidence now that there's clones of Snoke and, and the the figure that came out of the vat in uh, in the episode of, of Bad Batch. And so, like, we're getting, uh, you know, these, these ideas of Snoke. I think that was more the side where Palpatine was experimenting with how to transfer essence and how to maybe take force power from one body and put it into another is okay. Let's, let's go down that Avenue. Then that Snoke is Snoke. Snoke came out of the vat and he is clearly, you know, came out of the vat somewhere. He's working with Palpatine regardless. Like he has to be pretty tight niche with Palpatine. I created Snoke there. There had to been some kind of, connection between those two why though and when you because he created Mm -hmm. him and i and he's a he's a powerful figure he's the highest figure in this hierarchy of the first order so if Mm. therefore if palpatine is a part if palpatine's running the show behind the scenes of this entire trilogy as the actual figurehead of the first order then Snoke is his mm. second command pretending to be the See, highest there's your, power. There's where I disagree with you. I don't think that Palpatine, I don't think that Snoke is second in command of the First Order. I think the First Order is a mirage meant to distract you from the Final Order. Ah. So I do see them as, in in Rise of Skywalker, I see them, you know, when, when we get that defeat of the Final Order, I see it as a defeat of the entirety of the thing. But... I think but then why is there an entire board at the end of episode nine that are just like, oh, yeah, the final order. Yeah, this is a thing. Be- the only th- <laughs> reason I would argue and and this is a jumbled mess regardless. I don't I mean, like anybody listening, if you have different opinions, go into the Facebook group and tell us it's a good conversation. Um, but the only thing that I can think of that anybody would know is, you know, Kylo Ren and Hux are clearly separated on like their own regimen like snoke talks to hux and then he talks to kylo ren and then when they're together they're both clashing heads why is that because there's a different relationship between snoke and hux and snoke and kylo ren so i think if anybody knew anything about it that would be in that sense it would be snoke and hux or no one at all that's all i'm trying to say sorry very complicated but it's complicated plot but i do think it has to do with the contingency plan right and who knows what because we have you know, uh, Admiral Versio, who is trying to destroy everything. We have Gallus Rax, who's trying to blow up Jakku. We have others who are trying to take, you know, the, pe- you know, race alone, taking people out to the unknown regions. And you have these parts of the contingency plan that all seem very different. But when you think about Palpatine, he always gave people just the information that they needed and nothing more. So, like, Tarkin, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think Tarkin knows... Tarkin may know that he's a Sith. That, I think, is a possibility, even though we don't have any canon to verify that. I think it's possible. But I don't think he had... He knew everything that he was trying to do with staying alive and and force powers and all of that kind of stuff and transferring essences. I don't think Tarkin knew about that because Tarkin needed to know how to run the military. So he knew that. And Masameda, I think, knew... 
that he, you know, Palpatine was planning on overthrowing the Republic, and that's, you know, he got him in so that he could help him manipulate things and, and stuff like that. We have some evidence from that in the Aftermath trilogy. Uh, Masameda when, does know he's a Sith, by the way. I just well, got caught up on the Vader comic. Yeah, I, um, I, he knows he's a oh, Sith. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, but I don't know, I, again, I don't think he knows <laughs> about so everything. Weird. And, and even Vader, like Vader... I don't think knows about the political machinations that uh, that he's setting up, you know, at, at least not beyond what he needs to know, like, hey, get Orson Krennic in line, you know, or mm. I, I don't think Palpatine's like sitting there strategizing like, hey, if we pin Tarkin against Krennic, you think that they'll kind of, you know, one will eliminate the other and it'll make everything a little bit more dangerous. Like, I don't think that's that's his jam. And so when you go to the contingency, I think Zach kind of touched on this earlier of, okay, this is what this person believes. How am I going to utilize that to, to my advantage? This is what this person believes. How am I going to utilize that to get to my end goal? You know, it's taking that individualization of, of the person and in this case, using it for all the wrong reasons. And there's, mm. to, to add to that, there is no winning to anybody who is serving the empire. I mean, like when you look at all of the canon that we know, who, who, what person that doesn't either like flip and go for the rebels, like aside from those people who actually wins serving the empire, it's all a manipulation machination of Palpatine. And he's the only one that's winning really. I mean, like even though ultimately a nine, he doesn't actually win. He's the only one that wins. I mean, like, when you look at Aftermath, Masamita is trying to kill himself. Uh, Orson Krennic gets offed. Tarkin eventually goes down. All these people end up losing in their dedication to Palpatine. And Palpatine's the only one benefiting from all of this. Literally. Like, if you if you look at the canon, nobody wins in this empire. Like, nobody got out in a good sense ever unless they flipped to the rebels nobody got out good so that hmm. adds to the manipulation of palpatine that's an interesting I mean, question let me rerun every imperial officer <laughs> I can no i i yeah I but mean, no I general veers is about the only one i can think of who probably retired comfortably to a you know a planet we can only <laughs> but we, like a we can only on hope that oh admiral veers yeah, General Veers is probably it everybody else is dead <laughs> um but i i do think that we we've kind of hit on a point when you compare this to you know a high republic i think you have i think the lessons that were learned i i think and and i don't i, I don't want to knock on episode 9 because there's things in there that i really like but it i think was kind of with the it being the culmination of this big sequel story that they were telling that started chronologically with books like Aftermath that involves books like the Alphabet Squadron trilogy and stuff and where you mm -hmm. had all these different creators coming in and doing things and making these stories. I think they learned when it all came to a head there at episode nine and it didn't go, whether you, whether you like it or not, I don't think it can be said that it went the direction that they expected it to go. Right. Yeah. And, and there's many, many reasons for that. Drew talked about the deadline. There's Carrie Fisher's passing. Like, it's yeah, not a personal attack a on an, any one creator or anything. Um, but with the High Republic, I think the communal 
like telling of this story is the direction that they're going to go. I think they saw the potential of that with the contingency, right? It gets introduced in uh, Lost Stars. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, that's the Lost Stars, Lost Stars, you know, let's get it into Leia. They get it into the Leia comic, you know, obviously let's put her on Naboo. And oh, doesn't this seem like something like a tried and true Imperial, like, uh, you know, uh, Admiral Versio would use. And isn't that the great way to break him apart from his daughter so we can get yeah. her to turn? Like, I think they saw this thing that was created and said, oh, we can use it for all these different purposes, right? Whereas with the High Republic, they're saying, okay, let's figure out what we're all going to be doing. Let's figure out what that higher purpose is first and then fill in the pieces later. And that's why we're, I think we're getting a much crisper story. And I think that's the future of Star Wars storytelling is that, okay, yes, we're releasing it across these different mediums, but in a sense, everybody is getting the same story. And there's, there's almost a formula to it where there wasn't with the contingency. The contingency, it was, all right, well, this makes a lot of sense for the Aftermath trilogy, so you go in depth to it and we'll build off of that. And... With High Republic, you've got this formula where the comics, like uh, Zach was pointing out earlier, are these like smaller stories, smaller scale stories with a secondary threat, right? And then you have the, the adult novels, you have the YA novels, and you have the junior readers. And every level of uh, you know, textual difficulty that you go down, you get a smaller and smaller story, right? Crash Point Tower happens in about like, five to 10 pages of rising storm. Like it's, it's, Oh wow. A, yeah. It's, it's a, that might be a tad exaggeration. I didn't count it, but it happens in a very quick span of time because in crash point you have Ty York and other characters that make appearances. And I had read crash point first. So when I read rising storm, I was like, Oh, this is when that happened. And right when they get the communications and everything, but so. it all goes down to, you know, I, I've, I've applauded Kathleen Kennedy on her ability to learn and adjust. So when I critique, I mean that this is not relevant anymore. But it was very much in, the, in this whole contingency plan, this article, this is very much cleaning up the timeline for the sake of saving face. I mean, like, I, I don't care what you say. I mean, there's definitely, it definitely makes sense. There is a cohesiveness. I made the argument that, you know, Versio was being manipulated by Palpatine. There, it, it is cohesive. It's not like it's not. But when you're in this world as much as we are, we know that this is a cleanup. The writers that were doing the books were clearly setting up a story that the directors were not really setting up. And it's because... You know, the the reason why the High Republic excels so much, and I got to give this to, especially right now, um, Charles Soule and Kevin Scott, you know, Light of the Jedi is Charles Soule's book. He wrote that thing. He set that up. He got it going. Kevin Scott really builds upon what Charles Soule has written, and you know those two are talking back and forth and sending pages and chapters saying, Hey, man, you know, I'm sure Charles, Charles Soule, if he signed on to do the third book, he's going to say, hey, I need one character, these two characters to be here or something like that. And they're working together to build this story. And that's the magic of it all. And the problem was these directors were not working together and the, the uh, 
the literacy side of it all, they very much were. And that's where Kevin Feige comes in with Marvel and and just saves the day because you get guys like the Russos who can tell a really good story, but Kevin Feige, he has these plot points. So when when you look at Marvel, Kevin Feige is very much the head, the producer, the figurehead. He has all these ideas. And so the breakdown, because I do a lot of research on Marvel movies and how they work, is a director has a lot of freedom to do a lot of different things as far as tone, the kind of subgenre of superhero film that he wants to do. Kevin Feige just says, listen, this character has to be right here by this movie. That's where this character has to be. Everything else is up to you. At Lucasfilm at this current time, that was not happening. Now it is happening, but it was not happening at this current time. It was very much, you get your movie, you get your movie, you get your movie, and the literacy side was building together. That's why there is enough cohesiveness to make sense out of all of this and piece it together. And when you have a John Favreau and a Dave Filoni who are looking at all of this together, The Mandalorian alone is keeping it, keeping the intrigue because I am more intrigued with the First Order building plots in The Mandalorian than I am on the building arcs in the actual trilogy or sequel trilogy. Well, and I think I I've said Mm. this before that the biggest mistake Disney made was starting with the sequel trilogy. Like I get that they kind of had to, right. You got to bring episode seven back. You've got to bring back Luke Skywalker and everything like that. But they didn't know what they were doing with it at that point, because there's, these what like 25 years since you know heir to the empire that these star wars books have been coming out were basically just different creators were just creating whatever and and you had pockets with like new jedi order and stuff where there were series and and you saw the possibility of people working together but eu stuff either became very you know one book very different from the others or very formulaic like action adventure books right and but i think they looked at the big picture of okay well star wars is this place where everybody gets to create so let's let everybody create right whereas you know what's more successful or what was more successful in terms of a storytelling aspect were things like rogue one where you get Catalyst and you get Rebel Rising, right? You have Rogue One. Oh, here's this backstory that's going to be at the beginning of the movie. You go tell this story, right? And then here's this blank period we have in Jin's life. You go tell that story, right? Instead yeah. of tell a story about fighter pilots after the, the fall of the Empire, <laughs> <laughs> it's not there's a difference you keep there. rogue squadron books out of your mouth young man no i mean i was talking i will sp- not have you besmirch i was specifically talking about the alphabet <laughs> squadron trilogy right where oh you hang on that's no no, no 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 hear hear me out i'm not saying that they were bad i'm saying that they were handed over to somebody to create something right and no, the sa- uh, that's an awfully large assumption i don't know that we have a lot of support for that it was basically yeah i mean off of battlefront off of the rogue one novel alexander freed was like here's this tell tell a, a fighter pilot book aftermath chuck wendig was told mm. tell what happens right after the fall of the empire and those yeah, I, I i want those two because those are trilogies when you look at the success of them 
are extremely different. Alphabet Squadron is a very good trilogy of books. There you go. It's not an easy read. It's not always (laughs) fun to read. Whatever. Because it deals deals with hard stuff, but it is a well-executed story, whereas Aftermath is Aftermath. And... (laughs) That's my boy. And I think when you just throw it out there and say, hey, you make this, you have a little bit, and you do these broad ideas, you put things at risk based on the the whims of the different creators, right? But that's not necessarily a bad thing because it, it puts so much faith in the authorship. Like you, you have to really trust and, and, and be willing to bet on the people you, you give the assignment to. But it like didn't work. Said, well, but, hang but you on. Can't it doesn't bet always. On them until they've it doesn't themselves. always. Well, I, I agree with that. There's other things we we could talk about that that's outside of the scope of this particular thing. But I think it's a little unfair to say that there's no communication or just complete wild freedom to, because I think that's not that's not accurate at all. There are probably instances where a writer is given an assignment and says, "Here's the kind of story we want to tell." But we also know from interviews that we have had where there are times where an author will pitch an idea and say, this is the story I want to tell, and then they find a spot for it. So it doesn't always, it's not necessarily the wild, wild west when it comes to handing out these assignments. We shouldn't be giving people the idea that, you know, Chuck Wendig was given absolute and total creative freedom to come up with these things. I doubt that entirely. Having read some of his other books, I doubt that entirely. There were I can't imagine that there wasn't there weren't number of conversations that says what what do we need to hit? Like what are those timeline events we need to make sure are written down somewhere within the first twelve months post Return of the Jedi. That's fine. I, I was going to slide over to the movies because, Zach, you had said that these directors are clearly doing whatever they want and without really communicating and coordinating with other groups. And I don't think that's fair because J.J. Abrams is an executive producer on all three of those films. We cannot say that Ryan Johnson sabotaged everything set up in The Force Awakens because he worked hand in hand with the guy who wrote it. If there was no, really he that didn't. much. Yes, he did. No, like- no. The executive, <laughs> listen, here's the thing. I do, and I'm not saying I'm right. So when I say this, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying I listen and I do a lot of reading about the film politics of what's going on in the film industry, specifically Lucasfilm. And the and I, I listen to this stuff on a daily basis. And what happened with this with this stuff was there when it came to the film division – there was Kathleen Kennedy hiring directors. Now, when you look at the history of directors, how much trouble have we had with directors and these films? <laughs> there was a lot of, uh, like, you had um, you had uh, Gareth Edwards, but then there's rumors saying that Gareth Edwards didn't actually fil- finish the final edit, and I forget what his name actually Tony finished. Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy actually fin- finished the final edit. And there was a lot, basically, what it, how it worked in Lucasfilm. To my knowledge, and I'm not saying I'm a, I got a master's degree in film politics. I'm just saying I listen to this stuff every single day, especially when it comes to Star Wars. And how that dichotomy worked was the book division was the book division. The comic division was the comic division. And the film division was the film division. And everything else fell in the middle. That's how that worked. That's just what it was. And there were people whispering to each other to the book division saying hey this is kind of what's going to happen there's no secret that in um bloodline claudia gray did at the very least kind of conversed with ryan johnson but that's the only whisper you had 
Like, if you look up articles, J.J. Abrams did not like what Ryan Johnson did. The executive producer credit is such a, like, a producer credit, executive producer credit in the film industry. That is very much a politics game. When Steven Spielberg puts his name on a film, that is very much like he pitched an idea for a director. Ben Affleck was listed as an executive producer on Justice League, even though Joss Whedon was the one who took over and completely subverted that, and he was had more of a hand in the Zack Snyder version. The exec, But he still got the credit because that was what was in the actual contracts. These actors, these writers, these directors, they place deals to put their name on these movies because it adds more gravitas to their actual name. You put Bad Robot on there. It adds more to J.J. Abrams. All this stuff adds up, and the producer credits don't necessarily mean what they seem, even if they are in an executive producer label. And I'm not trying to defeat you. I'm just I'm just telling no, you no, what I've looked into. I, I, I understand what it is that you're saying, but I don't... The application here is kind of is off target to me because that may be a broad picture approach to filmmaking in general, and your your analysis of uh, of separating divisions is probably is accurate. I think we can look at that and say, yeah, the film guys worked with the film guys, and the book guys worked with the book guys. And so why was Ray nobody, and then she ended up being a Palpatine? Well, that's if they a were working story. together. Well, like we. Well, no, 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 no. Hang on, that's not fair because that's a decision that came afterwards. Okay, like that's. Being involved in overruling somebody else's creative decisions are two different things. So I don't want to say that. That's not fair. Um, I think that they're working together and still allowed to make different decisions. But like we said before, this isn't an episode nine teardown and rebuild it up again conversation because we've gone through that before. Fair enough. My, my point in all of this is that we know that there was a a decided lack of communication across the company. That's fine. I get that. Having worked for big companies, it's, you know, as, as, as happens as frequently as having a water cooler in the building somewhere. <laughs> it's all the time. But I think what we're learning from the High Republic specifically, to bring this way back around, is that it's working out better these days. Um, the High Republic, and, and again, in fairness, we don't have a ton of what the High Republic even is yet. We're, what, in the midst of phase one still? Out of a five-year-long process, something like that? We had a long way to go, and we know that there's a lot of... I mean, it would be great if we got more stuff. Like, we still don't have a video game announced, and there's hopes that we might one day. But right now, it's, it's kind of corralled into the written word, which isn't a bad thing. It's a great place to start, and it's a great place to try these things. Because to Brandon's point, you know, back in the Expanded Universe days, you did have... That was the friggin' wild, wild west where people made up some crazy stuff. But they Should did bring that. Should we get killed by a in. moon? Okay, <laughs> you guys keep making fun of that, but that's where things got so much better. You want? You think that's the wackiest thing that happens in the universe? You need to go back and reread Dark Saber one more time because that will blow your mind. Read the first chapter of Trucipicura. Goodness oh gracious! Oh my gosh! Yeah, if you want to see Velociraptors with VR machines attacking, that sings. <laughs> What's funny is full context, before we started this podcast, I ended up looking up the first Star Wars novel I ever read, which was Star Wars Prophets of the Dark Side, where there were actual prophets. Yes, where there were actual Yes, there were actual prophets after Return of the Jedi that were trying to still envision Palpatine's grand vision. This was way before, like, this was after Heir to the Empire, which 
made no sense at all. But like, it, I I don't know why my brain went there. I just was like, oh, Drew's got this thing going on. I, I'm gonna revisit this. And full disclosure, guys, for you guys <laughs> listening, you I read. never get to talk to Drew. So when I when I <laughs> when I get a like a point, I want to pick his brain because honestly, I really respect the fact that me and you have different opinions and I learned so much more even when we're talking about earlier in this episode like the rising storm you have such a different look on things that even if I like kind of bounce back and oppose you I actually learn more from you so it's all constructive that's good stop stop right there just stop right there batch eight hi ho (laughs) (laughs) no but but I think that 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 actually leads into kind of my concluding thought on the the big difference between what we had with we'll, we'll call it the sequel era storytelling and what we're getting with the high republic now where before it was okay more or less again this is being extremely reductive of a very complicated web of a situation <laughs> but chuck wendig here you you go write it during this time and alexander Fried, you go write it this time and claudia gray yeah you can write that story that you pitched to us that sounds good and they're kind of making sure it pieces together as they go along whereas now the difference is they're bringing in commodities that have proven themselves and getting them to work together right claudia gray has proven herself and justina ireland proven herself like all of these people have proven themselves not just in in being an author and being successful at that but in working in star wars and we're kind of seeing that same thing happening with mandalorian and we're seeing the same hmm. thing when you look at the credits in bad batch you're getting some of these people you're saying oh oh Justin Ridge, oh, this person was in Clone Wars, you know? This person wrote this episode of Rebels. Like, you're getting these people that are being brought back in because they were given a chance on a smaller project. Like, Justina Ireland's book was Lando's Luck. Like, not a lot of people read Lando's Luck. It's a great freaking book. If you haven't read it, you should go read it. But she proved that she could tell a story. She proved that she was somebody who you could work with that was adjustable. That you know all of these you know boxes you have to check. Whereas you give this huge, extremely important project to Chuck Wendig, and I'm sorry, but he proves to be a failure. Like the aftermath trilogy is a is a mess of a story. And he basically has been more or less blacklisted, as far as I understand, by uh, by Lucasfilm because of the way that he approached things. Whereas now you're bringing in these proven commodities who you give a tiny chance, they prove themselves, and you give them a bigger thing. And you continue to give them the bigger things until you get a Taika Waititi that now has a full-on Star Wars movie because he proved himself not just outside mm. of Star Wars, but he proved himself by doing multiple episodes of the Mandalorian. And I think that is a good model to have because let's say just for argument's sake, just since he's who I mentioned last, let's say Taika Waititi makes a terrible episode of Mandalorian. Then you go, okay, he made a terrible episode of Mandalorian and he doesn't get a shot number two. Right. And we're going to keep going with Bryce Dallas Howard or, you know, uh, whoever it may be. I think that's the model that needs to be going forward because these people are still being able to tell the stories that they want to tell, you know, like talking with the high Republic creators and seeing their stuff on social media and interviews, they're very much telling the story they want to tell. 
Mm-hmm. This is not, they're not being given like, hey, like with Mandalorian, you know, you've got Favreau writing the whole thing and, and the directors come in and they're able to make their adjustments and everything, but they're being given this story and saying, hey, you know, tell this. Whereas the High Republic people are being said like, or they're, they're getting to say, hey, this is the story we, we want to tell. And then they make sure it works together. So you've got it both ways. But the through line there is you get these people in and you kind of create this in-house situation like Marvel did with, with the Russo brothers. You know, um, that to me is an effective model going forward. The danger then becomes becoming too insular. Yes, but I think, what, that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah but I think... If anything, those two projects, High Republic and Mandalorian, have proven that they're bringing in diverse voices. Uh, There's still a lot of work to be done there, but I I think they are becoming more and more aware of the way that that impacts storytelling. I think, you know, if you look at Bryce Dallas Howard's first episode of Mandalorian, like that's a very uh, soft uh, female centric, like in terms of like female energy kind of story. It's, it's not a big bombastic action, masculine kind of story. Right. But we need those. But that's a story that a woman is going to be able to tell better than, you know, an action director guy who's only done action movies. You know what I mean? Like you're you're able to utilize that person to their strength because you're bringing in different people that can do different things. So you're not getting yeah. Joss Whedon trying to make every superhero movie that ever exists. You're getting Patty Jenkins telling Wonder Woman's story because Wonder Woman's story is the story of, uh, you know, a, a woman growing up and experiencing what it means to become a woman for the first time, right? Like that's not a story that any of us on this panel can tell. <laughs> and I think that's important to keep, I think that's a really important point to keep in mind as we're bringing in these new creators. Yeah, we need to make sure we have room for those different voices and and the weird stories too that really don't have a home elsewhere. I think it's it's really important to make sure that, that we that the Lucasfilm and Star Wars continue to take risks on new things mm-hmm. and try angles and avenues that that wouldn't normally be where they want to take things. I mean like I'm going to I'm going to sing the praises of EK Johnston's Padme books which if you had asked me that 5 years yes. ago there's no possible way they would have been interesting to me but that first one is barely a Star Wars book at all and it's fantastic. I do think you're onto something there because they are those are not the most beloved books, right? But the people well, that love them really love them. And I'm the same one of them. Be, because it's a story that would have no other place mm-hmm. to be told. Exactly. Like, that is not a thing. Those stories cannot be told about Luke Skywalker again. You know, like we don't really care about that. That's what why Queen Shadow is so brilliant is because the first three or four chapters of it is basically that one party after high school where everybody gets together and they are like, I don't know what to do tomorrow. It's American like, graffiti. To, it, just it really in, is. In a pond, yeah. <laughs> in a pond. What you're saying is something that, that I have been saying just with a different author, with Daniel Jose Older, right? Like, Last Shot is not a book that worked for me at all. But there are people out there who it's their favorite book. It, to me, it it doesn't. It, it doesn't hit my my Star Wars, what I come to Star Wars for, but it hits what it come, what other people come for, right? Yeah, and, and, and he we proved need that. exactly, and he proved that I can work with the fans. You know, I can handle my business. I can tell a good story. I can work together with other people. Like he checked all the boxes that they needed to bring him in 
to the high republic and go like all right you're you can be our guy you can be one you know one of our our in-house people who gets to work on these bigger projects right and i think you know something that i learned from that experience of having these stories it was those are really like the first ones that i really was like i don't like not like i couldn't get into it i don't like the story that they told mm. which is interesting right and so getting him coming in to more i was like okay they're obviously seeing something so it encouraged me i'm like i want to see what they see and then you get crash point tower and i'm finally able to go that's it right there like i get everything that he his style and everything worked for me in that story and that's why we have to get these diverse voices in you know it goes to what we were talking about earlier with the different levels that you're hitting with these stories you know like the people mm -hmm. who are into comics may not read the books but you've got to be able to tell this good comic story over here that the left hand's talking to the right hand but they're also working individually well and i think it also adds to the legacy of george lucas you know when when all of this comes around to me to to george lucas you know whether you like the prequels or not i do i love them i am a prequel kid till the day i die um but it goes back to when disney got star wars there was a lot more the legacy of George Lucas was a lot more of a shoe to fill than even Disney knew cuz they thought oh we'll get back to the basics well this will begin to make things right blah 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 and it took a it took a while to get to the footing and the best thing about Kathleen Kennedy which is why now my actual perception of her has changed is the ability to adapt and i think that's the best thing about this you know i think years from now when we got this High Republic thing going, Taika Waititi's film comes in and it kills it. Patty Jenkins is going to do a phenomenal job. Yeah, I, I think we're going to look at the prequels with a little bit more levity than we do now because obviously they're the last like major cinematic thing that we've gotten from Star Wars. And it meant so much to us um, that the whole director's getting a movie, you get a movie, whatever – that thing was very much new ground for all of them. And they did that. And whether the listeners out there think it worked or not, you know, I certainly think that a lot of things worked and didn't. I still say that episode nine is uh, the coolest Star Wars movie that I got everything I wanted without any context of how I got it. Um, but it's <laughs> still a it's still a cool movie to watch. The Last Jedi still touches me. And with episode seven, it's such an intriguing film and it's so Star Wars that it's like that movie is the basis of that trilogy. I love the way that movie makes me feel. And when we look at the future of the horizon, the right people are in line and they're the right people are going to be doing the jobs that they're intended to do. Dave, uh, Dave Filoni, John Favreau, you know, who, who, who says if, if these trilogy series were a success, that these guys would have not gotten the roles that they have gotten. And the fact that they have gotten these roles in Star Wars has changed Star Wars. The Mandalorian is such a massive success, way more than the trilogy series could have ever hoped for. It's just a uh, pop culture. I mean, Baby Yoda changed the world. Mando <laughs> changed the world. And these are all things that we would maybe have not gotten had there not been this other, you know, avenue and we've and kathleen's 
Kathleen Kennedy's ability to shift and move and learn and adapt is why Star Wars is thriving today. And while I have been negative on some points today, and I have been on many episodes, I always want to go back to the positives. The positives is the adaptability to learn. And this High Republic is so awesome because what we learned from the sequel trilogy, we get the right people that want to work together and be on board. And then when the movie direction goes, we got Taika Waititi, who's very in with Dave uh, Filoni and John Favreau, who have had massive success in not only The Mandalorian, but branching out on these other bigger arching shows. The Obi-Wan getting Deborah Chow to run this thing. There's been so much success that has happened from this failure. And... What does Yoda say about failure? Come on, guys. You got this. The greatest teacher failure is. Absolutely. And we're gaining that from Star Wars. So it ends on a positive note no matter what. This contingency plan, the article that Drew very beautifully pointed out and put together, it is cohesive. It does match. And we have pointed out other avenues of that. But guess what, guys? There's hope on the horizon, and Star Wars has never looked better to me than it ever has. I feel like you're supposed to go sail a ship off into the sunset. (laughs) I was about to say, batch eight. Listen, here's the thing. I like to always, if if I'm going to make something, if I'm going to point out the flaw in something, I need to point out if it actually is viably positive, which Star Wars is very viably positive right now, I need to make sure that if I'm going to point out a flaw that I also need to point out the course correction that has made this franchise great. I mean, like, it. Star Wars is a lot of fun right now, and that's why we keep talking about High Republic. It's like, it's the reason why the first 25 minutes of this episode was about High Republic. It's intriguing, it's beautiful, and that's because the right people got onto the job. And that's why we're going to be talking about Star Wars movies for years to come, because we're learning, we're adapting, we're growing, and we're getting the right people in the jobs that they need to be. I like collaboration. I think it always leads to better projects in the end. Um, Higher Republic is demonstrating that really, really well. So far, um, I'm not going to put a gold stamp of approval on it just yet because I swear if you guys do anything to St. Avar Chris, I will come for you in the night and it will not be pleasant. But we'll see how it happens next. I like the weird stories. I need the weird stories. I mean... Anime Star Wars is literally coming next month or two months. Is it October or September? Holy cow. Somebody will find out and let us know. By the end of the year, we'll know. So I'm, I'm glad that they're willing to try some of the, the interesting new and different styles in order to find out what works and what doesn't work because it, it's going to hit some of us better than it hits others. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. So yeah. And we buy, will buy the new, buy the new uh, EK Johnson book when it comes out in November and the edge of balance manga, which comes out, I think in September and then Ronin when it comes out because oh just it's going to be so good. Just guys, go on and pre-order it guys. Like get get it together. Yeah, but I can't get my Barnes and Noble card to match my online account. I need that 20% discount, dang. You you're saying Avar Chris is not worth that 20%? Let me tell you what, if it was a book just about her, I would pay double. I'd have two copies, one that I keep sealed <laughs> and then one that I actually open up and read. Oh man. All right, guys. Where, well, where's we... that trilogy of book? EK Johnson, uh hear me out. Ek, uh, let's uh, let's talk about this Avar Chris trilogy that we can uh, we can get work on. Yeah, all right, cool, dude. Good chat. I'm good chat. I'm not against an Avar Stellan Elzar no, little. Too, 
Young Jedi Knights prequel <laughs> series going on here. Charles Soul, get Knights. on it. I don't know. That, that would be too weird because of what we learned happened in Rising Storm. I don't need that chapter. I don't need to be in the room for that when it happens. It's the one thing I don't want to be in the room for. That's fair. It's, That's fair. It's weird. I, it's kind of just, nah. I don't think you're cool. allowed to be in the room for that. I hope not. I'm not sure they were supposed to be in the same room. Anyway. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, before this gets any more off the rails, we're going to wrap it up. And Where's just say, Lindsay when I need her? Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Now we know the thread that holds this thing together. <laughs> Uh, you can uh, always follow us over on Twitter and like Zach mentioned earlier in the show over on our Facebook group all our links for that stuff is going to be in the show notes along with our Patreon and nominated teacher page uh, Drew's Twitter, hmm. Zach's Twitter, our Instagram, all of that stuff is in the show notes. So since we are uh, closely approaching the two-hour mark of what's actually going to be on the episode and way over the two-hour mark of what we've uh, for how long we've been talking, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to remember that whether you're a fan of Palpatine or you're a fan of the High Republic or a fan of both, make sure that you remember to be a true fan of Star Wars and learn the lesson of Batch 8. But hear me out. Rogue One is still the best prequel. Hi ho. <laughs> Zach, can you can you hi ho so I can shut him up, please? Hi ho. Thank you. Goodness gracious! Somebody take us home. This is going off the rails. Zach, do you even know what that's from? Not at all. Yes, it that's what makes it beautiful. You could say it doesn't touch him in the same way. <laughs> The podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabers.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use different informational and educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it, it's ours, they made it, it's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here.